we were all together for a church meeting. We'd come from all parts of the earth. We were looking at the business before us, just going through the agenda. What are we going to do? Who are we going to send? How are we going to resource it? Where are we going to go? Amendments were being made and seconded. There's a little bit of debate on the floor about all of this. And of course, Robert's rules of order were being followed meticulously. And then suddenly, fire! Fire, as they say in the South. People begin to say things they'd never said before. People begin to hear things they'd never heard before. The room got windy. Fire! Crowds started to gather. Someone said, did somebody open a bottle of whiskey in here? St. Peter, who evidently couldn't think of much good to say, said, hey, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning after all. Now, what happened in that moment didn't involve wine and spirits. It involved the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 2, which is known as Pentecost. It had been eagerly anticipated and prophesied by a lot of Old Testament prophets, including Joel, who we just heard read. On a certain day and going forward, says the Lord, I'm going to pour my spirit out like fire on the heads of all people, on old people and young people, on maids and janitors, on soldiers and singers, politicians and professors, laborers, and even lawyers. But here's the thing. Joel and many of the Old Testament prophets, they weren't the only one to predict this generous outpouring of God's Spirit. Jesus himself predicts it too. And that is precisely what's going on in John chapter 14 and 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the grand debut in a more expansive way than ever before of the third person of the Trinity. He talks about the beginning of a time when everybody is going to get to go up to the microphone and tell about the mighty works of God. The time when the Spirit of God will rest upon old people who've lost their vision and young people who've lost their dreams. That's Pentecost time. That's our time. And today on Pentecost Sunday, we remember its inauguration. And so we're going to reflect on the third person of the Trinity in conversation with Jesus right here in John 14 and 16. Jesus, the one who sent and sends, present tense, the Holy Spirit. So can I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14, which as Kate just said, is page 771. Now just a few minutes back we stood and we used a creed. Today we use the Apostles' Creed, but every other Sunday we use one called the Nicene Creed. It's an affirmation of our faith. And in that creed we read this phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now when it comes to the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The Spirit is, without doubt, the most mysterious person of the Trinity. Now, some of that mystery simply can't be ironed out. But at the same time, there are things that we can and should know about the Holy Spirit because they come to us from the mouth of Jesus. In John 14 is where we find that. We enter into that chapter. It's Jesus' last night on this earth before His crucifixion. And as you well know, when you're dying... And you know you're dying, you don't dilly-dally around. You talk about the things that matter. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing here. And guess what? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's his last night, his last conversation with his disciples. And so we're going to listen in. And as we do that, 
we're going to let this scripture answer three questions for us. Number one, who is the Holy Spirit? Number two, what does the Holy Spirit do? And number three, how do we get the Holy Spirit? Three questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, in the context of verses 16, 17, and 18, Jesus says several things about the Spirit's identity, and we need to take note of these. First, in verse 17, Jesus twice uses the pronoun him in reference to the Holy Spirit. That's a personal pronoun. In other words, Jesus is not Obi-Wan Kenobi or Luke Skywalker, and the Holy Spirit is not the force. The Spirit is not a nebulous, impersonal power or enemy. We're not talking about Mother Nature. We're not talking about the circle of life here, okay? The Spirit is a Him, a person, a person. Secondly, we should note also in that same verse, verse 17, another telling detail. Jesus says that He's going to send another helper. Now, for all you grammar sharks, that word another, that little particle, is very, very important. You see, there are two terms in New Testament Greek that can be translated as another. One of them means another that is like or similar, and the other means another that is different. The term used here is another like me, another that is similar to me. Jesus is telling us that the Spirit is not just any old other person, but that the Spirit is like Him and the Father, equally and infinitely divine. The Spirit is God. That's what Jesus is saying. And third, a final clue about the Spirit's identity. In verse 18, here Jesus makes a seemingly nonsensical statement. In one fell swoop, He tells His disciples that He's going away, but then He says He's going to come to them. And in verse 19, He puts it a different way. He says, in a little while, you won't see me anymore, but then you will. What on earth? What's Jesus saying here? How is it possible for Him to leave and to come, to go and to be present? Welcome to the mind-boggling but profound and glorious doctrine of the Trinity. We have to come to terms with the reality of the Holy Spirit if we want to make sense of Jesus' statements right here. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is both one and three. One God, three persons. That's the brilliant, breathtaking centerpiece of the Christian faith. Theologian J.I. Packer puts it like this. God is triune, which is three. There are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, the Spirit applying it. Close quote. Put another way, while the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct, they're also so close that wherever one is, the other three are going to be present too. That's why the New Testament sometimes calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Go read Romans 8. That's why Jesus can tell us paradoxically right here in John 14 that He's going to go away yet be coming near. Now, what's our takeaway in a practical sense from what Jesus is teaching us right here? Let me offer this. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, into my life, you're not just getting some nebulous and impersonal force, right? You're not getting charged up like a battery. God Himself is coming to dwell in the midst of you, the triune God. He's setting up shop right in the middle of our lives. Jesus makes that super-duper clear in verse 23 when He says this, My Father and I, beautiful verse, My Father and I will come to you and make our home with you. Is that your reality? 
Has it ever been your reality? Have you been smitten and awestruck by the joy and wonder of God in you? That's the fuel of Christian life. Have you been overwhelmed by the privilege of it? Have you been moved to write a song or a poem about it? The poet Alfred Lord Tennyson once wrote this about a lover. If I had a flower for every time I thought of you, I could walk in my garden forever. Have you ever written anything like that about God? Now, the reason I ask these questions of us is because of what the New Testament elsewhere says about the Holy Spirit. For example, consider the words of Ephesians. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In Galatians, live in the Spirit. Now, what does all that mean? That language can be a little bit ambiguous at times, right? When we think about being filled up with something, our imagination tends to move away from thinking of the Spirit as a person, right? Filled up conjures up images of a gas or a liquid or a balloon or a force. We go to the gas station and say, fill her up. Go to the filling station, as we'd say in South Carolina. Say, put gas in. Or we say, turn up the voltage. I need 10 amps today, not 20 amps. I got a lot of work to do. Make me into an X-man. That is not the way to approach being filled up by the Spirit. We got to shift our thinking. What does it mean to be full of a person? Several years ago, I heard a very helpful depiction of this, and I want to share it with you in a way that's kind of connected to my own life. About five years ago, my parents were invited to host a prominent Christian speaker in their home in a small town, South Carolina. His name is Ravi Zacharias. Some of you may know of him. He's a, an apologist, a defender of the faith. He was coming to the little town to do some events, and especially in the big city about 30 miles away. But he wanted to stay with them. My sister worked for him. That's how this happened. So she said, oh, you can stay with mom and dad. My parents love his work, so they were thrilled. Ravi Zacharias was going to be in their house, eating and sleeping and hanging out. Now, during that time, our home was different. In certain ways, it was a bit unrecognizable. The house was spotless and tidy and inviting. It looked like something from Garden and Gun, which is the southern version of Canadian living. And then there was food. There was feasting, right? My mom's a great cook, but she took it to a whole new level, right? Jello pudding turned into creme brulee. Barbecue pulled pork turned into confit de jambon. <laughs> but more than this, the griping and the pet peeving and the spatting that are part of most of our households evaporated. Right? We weren't just putting on a good face. There was something more authentic and unaffected about all of this. We were swept up in the excitement and the joy and the anticipation of the presence of this guest. And all those little irritants vanished. There was a fresh relational dynamic. Being filled with the Spirit is a little bit like that, I think. Have you tasted that? Are you being spiritually and emotionally and morally and relationally renovated and elevated by the presence of God in you, the glorious person parked in the center of your life? That's who the Holy Spirit is. What does the Spirit do? There is, of course, a ton that could be said about this, and we can't cover it all today, so I'm going to have to be selective, and I want to talk about the foundational aspects of the Spirit's work. Three dimensions. What the Spirit does with regard to Jesus what the Spirit does with regard to you and me individually, and what the Spirit does with regard to us as a community, the church. Got that? The Spirit's work with regard to Jesus. Look at verse 19 again. In a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
The Spirit's job is to illuminate Jesus Christ, to make Jesus beautiful, attractive, visible in the hearts of every man, woman, and child. Think of the Spirit as a giant spotlight and think of Jesus as a magnificent building. The Spirit's job is to irradiate, to illuminate that building, making it visible in all of its impressiveness. Among other things, that means that to to be engulfed by the Holy Spirit is to be focused and oriented to Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit wants us to see, Him. It would be odd, after all, to fixate on the spotlight and to not look at the building. That is precisely why in St. Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, guess what he's talking about? Jesus. And that's a sermon that the Spirit spurred. Now, what does this mean? It means, for starters, that we should never... Never, never, never pit the work of the Spirit against Jesus Christ and against Scripture, which is His Word. The Spirit and the Word exist in eternal and unalterable and perfect harmony and partnership. And so you should rightly be suspicious of anyone who says something, like I heard someone say a few weeks ago, we don't need the Bible in this church because we have the Spirit. In other words, if you think you've encountered the Spirit, but Jesus isn't really part of that encounter then you would do well to second guess. Do you see? Let's talk about the Spirit's work in us individually, in you and me. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. In one breath, Jesus says the Spirit's work involves helping and truth-telling, and He puts those together for a reason. Let's break this down. First of all, the Spirit is called a helper. Now, this term, for those of you who have more than one translation of the Bible, you'll know this, this term is variously translated. Sometimes it's rendered as advocate, that's the NIV. Sometimes it's rendered as comforter, that's the King James. Sometimes counselor, that's the Revised Standard Version. Sometimes helper, that's the English Standard Version, which we use. And the message says friend. Whenever you see a lot of translational diversity like that, you should assume that there is a very rich Greek word behind the English, and there is. What does that word mean? It's a word that speaks about someone who is tirelessly committed to your cause and to you. Someone who is always with you and always for you. Someone you don't just see for a few hours each week, but they're with you all day, every day. They never leave your side. And everything they do is for your best interest and mine. So what is our best interest? That's the second thing that Jesus says, right? He says the Spirit's the Spirit of truth, and this connects with what's in our best interest. So what is the truth the Spirit tells? I think it has sort of two dimensions. It's the truth about us, and it's the truth about God. And we can get things kind of skewed in both of these areas. On the one hand, the Spirit comes into our lives, your life, my life, especially Alistair's life, And he looks around and he's horrified. He's appalled. We're riddled with addictions. Some of them are more socially acceptable than others, right? We're addicted to control and power, maybe shopping. We're prone to pursue relational intimacy in ways that are harmful to us and destructive to others. We're graspy and selfish because we think we have to make our own meaning, take care of our own destiny, procure our own value. Some of us work ourselves to the bone just to prove that we matter. And many of us know what it's like to manipulate people to squeeze out some words of affirmation. We're afflicted by chronic insecurities and sometimes lingering dispositions of malcontent and ingratitude. 
we think we're invincible. And guess what? At the very same time, we're often totally blind to that. Apart from God, as Martin Luther said, we can be sunk so deeply in our sins that we don't even feel them. We look out in our lives and sometimes we see a lush and groomed and serene golf course. The Holy Spirit sees below the surface there's a landfill down there. We have to see that too. It's part of the truth about our existence. That's exactly what Jesus means in John 16 when he says the Holy Spirit will come to convict. That's Jesus saying that. So you might say this aspect of the Spirit's work is balloon-popping work. Yeah, that's what a real friend and a real advocate does. They tell you the truth so you don't get stuck in a self-destructive delusion. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit's the best friend we'll ever have. He's the friend that makes those interventions that keep us from ruining ourselves. On the other hand, the Spirit, of, the Spirit tells the truth about God, right? The Spirit's not just here to pop balloons, right? Look at verses 19 and 21 there. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's something very astounding here. There are a lot of people in this world, and probably in this room right now today, who have a very negative reaction to the word God. God equals punishment. God equals condemning judgment. God equals interrogator. God is not exactly someone we want to have around all the time, especially not at our 19th birthday party. Some of us don't even want him at work. I know about that. I have been there. Believe me. We don't always swell with affection when we think about God, and we don't, and sometimes we approach the idea of obeying God with displeasure and reluctance. The Holy Spirit has come to reverse that. The Holy Spirit wants us to know God the way that Jesus knows Him, as God truly is, a God that is good and generous and committed and affectionate towards us, a good, good Father, as we sing sometimes here at the church. Now, for some of us, that word Father, it carries baggage too, right? We normally don't use the word Father in the same sentence as the word good. The Spirit is here to redeem that. Some of us have been yearning for a true Father. The Spirit here is, is here to fulfill that. That's all over verses 19 through 21. In these verses, these beautiful verses, Jesus is referencing something that is explicitly named elsewhere in the New Testament. It is communion, fellowship, same Greek word, communion and fellowship with God, intimate, sustained connection with God our Father. That's the Spirit's work. See, the Spirit just doesn't give us the clarity to see that we're lost and sinful. It doesn't just give us the wisdom to see we don't have spiritual resources in ourselves. No, it doesn't stop there. He brings us to a truthful view of God, a view that replaces some of those warped and negative impressions that we may have from bad church experiences, from a poor reading of the Bible, or from a dad who was pretty lousy. Martin Luther puts it like this. The Holy Spirit streams into the heart and makes a new person one that now loves God and gladly does His will. To become a Christian is just to experience that reversal, to taste that heartwarming towards God, to be connected and infilled with the living God, verse 20. And when that happens, this is the good news, we change for the better. See, the Spirit's influence on us is not vague and undefined. 
our affections get reordered. We begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things he hates, which includes everything that's unjust and exploitative and confused and deceptive and ugly in this world. Things that were once super important to us lose their pull, and things that were trivial and even embarrassing become precious to us. We gain light and courage in a heart which burns with love and delight in whatever pleases God. That's what happens when the Spirit sets up shop in you, when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit make their home in us. And from another angle, we can actually say, and this is fantastic, that the Spirit brings the life of God into our lives. And that's the glorious thing, because that means that there is no wound in us, in you or me, that can't ultimately be healed. It means there's no broken in us that can't ultimately be repaired. It means there's no habit in us, no, no habit that binds us that can't ultimately be undone. Can I get an amen for that? The Holy Spirit is here to show us that we're sick people in need of help, but also that we are people who are in the hands of a caring and compassionate and competent physician, God our Father. And last, I speak about how the Spirit works collectively in us as the church, how the Spirit works to unite us to each other and all Christians in communion. That, that communion we experience with God isn't just between us and Him. Christianity is not a me and Jesus thing only. It's an us thing before God. We're in the family of God. Look at verse 20 again. The pronoun you appears three times in that passage. The Greek in all three times is the second person plural. In French, it's vous. In Southern, it's y'all. In other words, the connection and the intimacy that Jesus is depicting here is something we participate in together with one another. The New Testament word for communion refers to a close relationship between one, two, or more people that is built on a third reality. Right? So you can't just have a third spiritual reality. You can't just have communion with a business associate or a classmate. It's something that God establishes between people. That's what the Spirit does. That's part of His comforting work. Now, comfort is from an old Latin term that, this is what it means, the intense impartation of strength. And that is precisely what the Spirit is doing when He unites us together as the church. We're being strengthened for the difficulties of Christian life, and they will be there. Just look at the life of Jesus. We're all going to face internal and external battles as Christians, and we're going to need help and support from each other. That comes from our communion together in Christ through the Spirit. So you might put it like this. Through communion in the Spirit, we get a new father, and because we get a new father, we also get new brothers and sisters. We get connected to each other in a spiritual bond of infinite depth. And according to the New Testament, that bond can and should transcend culture, and race, and temperament, and socioeconomic status, and everything else that divides people. That's the work of the Spirit. That's real power. Let me tell you a story. There's a little church down in Alabama. It's called the Interchange Church because it is built at the intersection of two big highways, the Interchange Church, and that church meets in a warehouse. People at that church often drive their cars or trucks right on into the warehouse on Sunday morning, and there's typically smoking in that big room before the service begins. The pastor says he's happy it's just tobacco. That's progress for this group. Now, there's a lady who's part of that community. Let's call her Kelly. Not too long ago, Kelly found herself beaten to a pulp by her boyfriend. Her face was so black and blue that she was ashamed to leave the house. 
but she had a baby. And after two or three days, the milk ran out, and so she's going to have to go to the store. So she put on as much makeup as her bruised face could hold. She wore her biggest, darkest sunglasses. She just wanted to get in and out as quickly as is possible. While she was in the supermarket, a lady that Kelly had never seen before came up and approached her, and she said, what happened to you, baby? Kelly kind of fumbled for her words, and then she lied. She said she'd fallen. She'd had a fall at the house. But that woman didn't buy it. She said, a man did that to you, didn't he? Kelly started crying, and she confessed, yes. Without missing a beat, the lady said, girl, you need a friend, and you need a church. Kelly looked confused. She didn't even know what a church was. This is what she said in the testimony I saw. And the lady said, I'm going to take you to church with me in the morning. You're going with me. Kelly said, well, I don't, I don't want to go to church, and I didn't ask for that. And the lady said, I didn't ask you if you wanted to go to church. You need someone to look after you. That's how evangelism is done where I'm from. <laughs> the next morning, Kelly went to the Interchange Church. And a few weeks later, she got baptized. And when she got baptized, this is what she said at that service. She said this, I finally found the family that God wanted me to have in the first place. This is the love I have been looking for, but I didn't know where it was. That's the communion of the saints through the power of the Holy Spirit. And who doesn't want that? We desperately need that. The Bible says we need it as much as water and air. And thousands of people in this city need it. I found it in this place. I know some of you have too. And we hope and pray that still more will. Now, speaking of all this, how do we receive the Spirit? Let's think about this briefly in closing. How do we taste the honey? That's the final question. Look with me at verse 23. This is what Jesus says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home within him or her. There can be a little bit of confusion about this statement. On the surface, Jesus seems to say that if we want communion with God in the Spirit, we need to kind of procure it. In other words, communion comes as a result of something that we do. The impetus is on us. Or is it? I think not. Martin Luther helped me to see this clearly. What Jesus is saying here has to be situated in the wider context of John's gospel and also the New Testament. If perfect love and obedience were prerequisite for the Holy Spirit, then guess what? Peter and all the disciples wouldn't have gotten the Holy Spirit. In John 13, Jesus says they're going to break faith with him. They're going to disobey him and not love him. And in John 18, they do it. He gets arrested and his friends abandon him. And Peter denies him. Yet in Acts 2, which happened after that, they received the Spirit. And so do we. Here's the point. God always lays the first stone. God always touches us first. In other words, as one commentator put it, the whole of our love for God is an answer to His love for us. We can't begin to love God and to obey Him apart from His help. And the Holy Spirit is here to help, to create in us a love for God that we live out of in obedience. Now, how does this apply to our receiving the Spirit here and now today? Let me say two quick things. First of all, for those who are not Christians or new Christians, let me say this. Pay attention to your heart. Be aware of what you're thinking and feeling about Jesus as you read the Bible, as you hear God's Word preached, as you worship. Are you finding yourself attentive? Are you finding your heart warmed? Are you finding an attraction to Jesus? Instead of choosing to dismiss that, choose to indulge it. It's the only time your pastor will tell you to indulge something. Indulge it. When you indulge, it means you do something out of the ordinary. You don't do what's normal. Indulge it. Don't dismiss it or ignore it. 
We indulge all sorts of things, and they often lead us to destructive behaviors and addictions. Why not indulge Jesus? He's the opposite of all that. Maybe that's why you have heart warmth for him right now. He's giving you a try if you have that warmth. Indulge. Pray with us after this service. And let me say something to those of you who are Christians and want more. Do what Jesus says in verse 23. Live for him. Obey him. Do life his way. Let him be your compass and your counselor. Not because it impresses him or wins his favor, right, but because it attests to the authenticity of your devotion. And where your devotion to God is authentic, you're making more and more room in your heart for the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Think of it a bit like jogging. The more you jog, the more health there is in you. But you can only jog because God gave you legs. Those legs came first, right? There's a sort of reciprocity at play in this. So use the legs. Gain health. Use your life to live for Jesus, and you will find that Jesus is living in you. That's what he says right here in verse 15 and 16, verse 21, and of course, verse 23. Are you hearing? Get connected and stay connected to God. It is Pentecost, after all, and God is here. We're going to close in prayer, and I've selected a special prayer to use today. It's an ancient Christian prayer. In Latin, it's called Veni Spiritus Sanctus. I'm not going to pray it in Latin. I'm going to pray it in English. It's a prayer for the Holy Spirit to come, and I think it's very fitting to use on Pentecost Sunday. So let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, send forth the heavenly radiance of your light. Come, Father of the poor, come, giver of gifts, come, light of the heart. Greatest comforter, sweet guest of the soul, sweet consolation. In labor, rest, and heat, temperance, in tears, solace. O most blessed light, fill the inmost heart of your faithful. Without your grace, there is nothing in us, nothing at least that is not harmful. Cleanse that which is unclean, water that which is dry, heal that which is wounded. Bend that which is inflexible, fire that which is chilled, and correct that which goes astray. Give to your faithful your gifts from on high. Grant us the reward of virtue, the deliverance of salvation, and eternal and present joy with Jesus Christ, who together with God the Father and God the Spirit reigns now and for all eternity. Amen.